No? Okay. Well, somebody, if you see her, you let her know. She uh, did the decorations for the sanctuary. Yeah. Um, she's actually done it for a couple of years and just want to thank her and appreciate the fact that there are folks in our church who bring their various gifts, talents, abilities to bear. Um, and so we're grateful for folks like Viviana and all of you who serve and contribute to the life of our church. We're in the season of Advent. How are you feeling about the season of Advent? Cece, what do I, what do I, what do I make of that? Okay. We're in the season of Advent, and uh, I didn't grow up. I didn't grow up celebrating Advent in church. Maybe some of you guys could relate to that. I grew up, actually, uh, in a church culture where Christmas was sort of an afterthought. And, uh, and it's been actually being a pastor that's enabled, allowed me to understand the significance of, of Advent and the weightiness of Advent and the and the power of Advent. I heard uh, this story as a sermon illustration from a pastor years back, and I'll never forget, because it stuck with me. It's about a famous event that happened in 1967. It was a, it was a murder of a young woman Catherine Genovese was her name. And, and it wasn't the murder itself that sort of shook the country. But as the title of the, the, the article, the news uh, suggests, it was, it was what happened to the folks who saw what happened. The 38 who saw the murder and didn't call the police. I'm just going to read to you an excerpt from the newspaper article. that described this event. For more than half an hour, 38 respectable law-abiding citizens in Queens watched the killer stalk and stab a woman in three separate attacks in Kew Gardens. Twice their chatter and the sudden glow of their bedroom lights interrupted him and frightened him off. Each time he returned, sought her out, stabbed her again, and not one person phoned the police during the assault. One witness called after the woman was dead. Still shocked is Assistant Chief Inspector Frederick M. Lusson, in charge of the borough's detectives and a veteran of 25 years of homicide investigations. The Kew Garden slaying baffles him, not because it's a murder, but because the good people failed to call the police. As we've reconstructed the crime, he said, the assailant had three chances to kill this woman during a 35-minute period. He returned twice to complete the job. If we had been called when he first attacked, the woman might not be dead now. This is what the police say happened. At 3.20 a.m. in the state middle-class tree-lined Austin Street area, 28-year-old Catherine Genovese, otherwise known as Kitty to her friends, was returning home from a job as a, bar, as a manager of a bar. She parked her car and noticed a man at the far end of the lot near a seven-story apartment complex. She halted. 
Then nervously, she headed up Austin Street where there is a call box to the police precinct nearby. She got as far as a streetlight in front of a bookstore before the man grabbed her. She screamed. Lights went on in the 10-story apartment complex which faces the bookstore. Windows slid open. Miss Genevieve screamed, oh my God, he stabbed me. Please help me. Please help me. From one of the upper windows in the apartment house, a man called down, let that girl alone. And the assailant looked up at him, shrugged, and walked down the Austin Street toward a white sedan parked a short distance away. Miss Genevieve struggled to her feet. Lights went out. The killer returned to Miss Genevieve, now trying to make her way around the side of the building by the parking lot to get to her apartment. And the assailant stabbed her again. I'm dying. She shrieked, I'm dying. Windows were opened again and lights went on in many apartments. The assailant got into his car, drove away. Miss Genevieve staggered to her feet. It was now 3.35 a.m. The assailant returned. By then, she had crawled to the back of the building where the doors to the apartment complex held out hope for safety. The killer tried the first door. She wasn't there. At the second door, he saw her slumped on the floor at the foot of the stairs, and he stabbed her a third time, fatally. It was 3.50 a.m. by the time police received their first call from a man who was a neighbor of Miss Genevieve's. In two minutes, the police were at the scene. The neighbor and another woman who were the only persons on the street, nobody else came forward. The man explained that he had called police after much deliberation. He actually called a friend for advice. What should I do? This is what he said. I didn't want to get involved. Six days later, the police arrested Winston Mosley, a 29-year-old business machine operator, and charged him with homicide. He had no previous record. He's married with two children and owns home in Queens. The police stressed how simple it would have been to have gotten in touch with them. A phone call, said one of the detectives, would have done it. And today, witnesses from the neighborhood find it difficult to explain why they didn't call the police. A housewife quite casually said, we thought it was a lover's quarrel. A husband and wife both said, frankly, we were afraid. A distraught woman wiping her hands in her apron said, I didn't want my husband to get involved. Another one asked why she didn't call the police at the time. I was tired, he said without emotion. I just went to bed. It was 4.25 a.m. When, when the ambulance arrived to take the body of Miss Genovese. Then a solemn detective said the people then came out. When the killer was apprehended and chief of detectives Albert Seaman asked him how he dared to attack a woman in front of so many witnesses, Winston Mosley calmly replied, I knew that they wouldn't do anything. People never do. The essence of Christmas, friends, tells us that when God heard our cry, he came down and did something. Did you hear what I just said? The Christmas story 
is about a God who hears our cry, who sees our suffering, and he came down and he got involved. I have good news for somebody this morning. That is our God always hears our cry. He always hears our cry. Exodus 3, 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering, so I have come down. I have come down. I have come down to rescue them. Friend, I don't know what you're going through this Christmas. I don't know what hardship, what setback, what suffering you're enduring, but I want you to know, and I want you to hear this. God hears your cry. And God sees your suffering. And we have a God who didn't just hear our cry. He came down and he got involved. Not at the risk of his life. But at the cost of his life. A God who comes down, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. I know some of y'all are thinking, some of you are thinking, Peter, this is Christmas. I came to church to feel good. Sail bells ringing, jingle bells, jingle bells, chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Why are you telling us such a horrific story? I'll tell you why. Do you know why for years the Christmas story had no meaning for me? Because I didn't understand the backdrop and the context. The backdrop and the context in which Jesus is born is a brutal world filled with injustice, suffering, and hardship where evil seemingly is winning. There is a lunatic psychopath named Herod ruling the land who has just ushered in an order to kill infants. The essence of Christmas, the true story of Christianity, is not an escape from a real world of pain, suffering, and injustice. The essence of Christmas is that we have a God who chose to enter into a real world of suffering, pain, and injustice to do something about it. And the good news of Christmas, listen, is this. If God was willing to get involved in the mess that is our world, God is willing to get into the mess that is our lives. Yeah. That's Christmas. Can I get an amen? If you understand that the meaning of Christmas is that, Yes, we are people of hope, peace, and joy. And we sing about it throughout Christmas. But hope, peace, and joy don't come from skirting how difficult things are, how hard things are. But it comes from, it comes from, it comes from marching right through it, believing that there is something on the other side. And how do we have hope that there is something on the other side? Because on this day, a Savior was born who looked at hardship, suffering, injustice, and evil in the face. And through his life, death, and resurrection, conquered evil, Satan, injustice, and suffering. And evil will not have the last word. Injustice will not have the last word. Suffering will not have the worst word. Death will not have the last word. That is Christmas. That is Christmas. And if you understand 
the weight of Christmas. I, if you've been at New Community for any length of time, I, I preach some of the rawest sermons at Christmas. Merry Christmas. Here's a question for you. Let's apply this because Christmas could be this ethereal thing, deep theology, but I want to bring it down to earth. I want to, I want to ask, how does it change us? So let me ask you this question right away. In a hurting world with hurting people, we have a God who got involved at tremendous cost to himself. Can I ask you, are you involved? Most of us don't want to get involved, do we? Why? Here's one reason. Because it requires you to be vulnerable. And as Brené Brown says, vulnerability is what? It's uncertainty. It's risk. It's emotional exposure. And so in a hurting world of hurt, broken people, what do we do? We would rather sit in our 10-story apartment complex behind closed doors of security, comfort, and safety. Because coming down and getting involved would mean what? You might get hurt. Coming down and getting involved might mean what? Retaliation for calling. So most of us go, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to be involved. But you know what we lose in the process? We lose being fully human. When we don't get involved, we lose the ability to feel empathy, compassion, a sense of belonging that I am a part of something larger than me. This sense in which we can walk away saying, I can love and be loved. We lose a lot in the process. We don't want to be vulnerable. Another reason, we live in a culture where the highest value is my freedom. And getting involved means that I lose that freedom. So we don't want to be involved. Can I just give you some examples? Why would you attend church and not join it? Why would you attend church and come and go and never fully commit to it? I'll tell you why. Because joining and fully committing means what? Becoming vulnerable. What do you mean vulnerable? There's accountability. There's responsibility. And some of us are going, I don't want that. Here's another example. Why would you live together and not get married? Part of being married is saying to someone, I love you enough to be vulnerable with you, to fully commit to you. You say, I would rather just live together than not get married. The saying is what? I want to enjoy the benefits of being together without the vulnerable risk. Can I keep going for a couple more examples? You sure? Check this out, you guys. According to industry experts for 2019, the average American, that's you, will spend $920 per person on holiday gifts. That is up from $885 in 2018. Americans will spend a trillion dollars on holiday gifts this year. 
I know some of y'all being really judgmental right now. I'm going, that ain't me. Let me ask you something. In this season and this culture of materialism, commercialism, and spending on me, can I just ask you something? How generous are you? Let me be even more specific. Are you generous so that you're vulnerable? Are you generous to the needs of the hurting and broken to the extent that it starts hurting? By the way, do you know that's the biblical standard? The biblical standard is not tithing. I don't believe in tithing. Tithing was just a basic starting point. The New Testament teaching according to Jesus is we give until it's sacrificial. How vulnerable are you with your finances, with your time, with your energy, with your resources? Most of us are going, I want to be somewhat involved, but do I want to be that involved? Are you involved? Are you involved? One word captures the essence of Christmas. It's the word incarnation. Everybody say that with me. Ready? Incarnation. Literally from incarnate or in flesh. The essence of Christmas, as we'll discover for the next three weeks, just even saying it sounds silly, mind-boggling, utterly, utterly ridiculous. Creator God became a baby. The beginningless, uncreated one Took on flesh and bone. The one who holds the universe in his hands became fragile. Good Lord. How do we even begin to wrap our minds around that? Oh, we're going to try for the next three weeks. We begin today in probably one of the most profound, profound passages in the New Testament that talks about this incredible miracle that is God in Christ Jesus became flesh. And it's John chapter 1. I want to look at two verses today and call it a day. By the way, two verses doesn't mean it's going to be short. Just FYI. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I know, you and I just read that, no, 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 I know. But just, 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 like 14, the word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory. We've seen, oh my goodness, we've seen his glory, John says, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. It's one thing to believe this. It's one thing to hear it. But here's what I want to do. I want to ask you and me, how does this change us? How does this change us? What does this mean? And by the way, can I just tell you something? If incarnation is true, then anything is possible. If the incarnation is true, I don't care what you came in here with today going, I don't think that's possible. Anything is possible. Can I get an amen? Let's try and wrap our mind around by the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to understand and apply these truths to us. What do we get from this incredible passage? First, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. 
Jesus is God, the baby born in a feeding trough to unwed teenagers is the beginningless, uncreated one. And no passage in the Bible more powerfully and dramatically says this than John 1, 1. It's in three ways. In the beginning, John says, was the word. The word has no beginning. The word has no beginning. In the beginning, the word already was. No one created the word because in the beginning, when things were being created, the word what? Already was. I know that that's just like, Not only was the word beginningless, John says the word is also a person, though. He says the word was what? With God. Do you know what that means? The beginningless, uncreated one, you can know him. Come on. You could have a relationship with him. Then John says the word himself was God. Jesus Christ, the uncreated second person of the Trinity, is the triune God. Apostle Paul gets to this incredible truth in Colossians 1.15. There's so many in the New Testament. Let me just mention one. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. Do you know who believed that, that Jesus was God? Jesus. Do you know why I say that? Because, I said, because he said it. Because he said it, thank you. Do you know why I say that? Because some of us were taught that Jesus never claimed that. Jesus never said that. A teacher, yeah. A philosopher, yeah. A social activist, yes. A miracle worker, yes. But Jesus never claimed that. His disciples sort of propagated that after his death. Jesus never claimed to be God. The problem is we have something called the New Testament. Where Jesus is constantly saying, what? I'm God. I'm God. I'm God. I'm God. Let me just give you like two examples, okay? Matthew eleven twenty-seven. 27. No one knows the Son, Jesus says, except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. Jesus, how can you say nobody knows God? We all kind of sort of know God. And Jesus is saying, listen to the complete exhaustive knowledge that I have of God, it's as if none of you really know God. But how can you have complete exhaustive, complete exhaustive knowledge of God unless you were what? God. But the more amazing part is the first part of that when he says no one knows the Son but the Father. Some of us I know like to go, nobody understands me. Okay, maybe I'm the only one with ego big enough to go, nobody understands me. I'm just going to, nobody understands. Jesus is saying here, listen, Jesus is saying, no one knows the Son. No one knows me except the Father. He's saying, the only person able to comprehend an infinite, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing being like me is someone who is also infinite, eternal, all-knowing, all-wise. And then there's this mic drop moment. There's lots of mic drop moments in the New Testament. This is one of them. Jesus is arguing with the teachers and the Pharisees. And Jesus is essentially, essentially trying to tell them who he is. And Jesus in one line says, I saw Abraham being born. And of course, they're thinking Abraham died like centuries ago. 
And they go, you're not even 50 years old, Jesus. How can you say that you knew Abraham? And Jesus says in John 8, 58, listen, mic drop moment. Before Abraham was, I am. I imagine he sort of walked away at that time. And the verb form when he says, Abraham, before Abraham was, I am, instead of saying I was, is deliberately inappropriate. He's claiming the title of the divine name that God gave Moses. When Moses says, when I go to tell your people who are you, tell me who you are. Jesus, God says what? Tell them that my name is what? I am. And the religious leaders try to stone him. Why? Because stoning was the penalty for blasphemy. They all knew what he was saying. One more, Mark 2, 25. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is constantly saying in the gospel, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. Why? Common sense tells us that you can only forgive a sin if it's against you. And Jesus says, any sin you commit is ultimately against me because I am the creator and all sins are against my creation. You guys, I, I don't want to get too heady and intellectual, so let me just boil this down, Okay. Jesus claimed to be God, and Jews, devout Jews, believed him and gave their lives for him. To which you go, well, why is that important? Because the last people on earth to believe that a human being could be God was who? To choose. Their image and view of God was, he's so transcendent, he is so far removed from anything that there is no way that a human being could possibly, the last people on earth to believe that Jesus could be God, a man could be God was them, and yet they believed him and gave their lives for him. Listen to this. Can you imagine the scrutiny that Jesus would have been under? If somebody is claiming to be God in first century Palestine, a man is claiming to be God, then everybody's going, there is no way you could be God. And yet they believed him. Why? John 1.14, John says, well, we read it. We saw his glory. We saw his life. We saw his character. We saw and heard his teaching, his miracles. We saw his glory and placed their faith in him. I just want to mention one real quick thing. It's really hard to fool your family members, yes? James, Jesus' brother, not only believed that Jesus was God, but he was one of the earliest leaders of the Jerusalem church and ultimately died a martyr in 65 A.D., Jesus is God. Let's apply this. Thank you for the intellectual exercise, Peter. What does this mean for me? Let's apply this. If Jesus is God, how can you and I look at anything in our lives and say, that'll never change? I'm going to see it again, CC. If Jesus is who he says he is, how can you and I look at anything, listen to me, how can you and I look at anything in life and saying that will never change? Christmas means anything can change. Psalm 147, verse 5. Our Lord is great with limitless strength, will never comprehend what he knows and does. Why are you putting limits on a limitless God? 
Why do we put limits about what could happen in our world, what could happen in our families, what could happen even in our own personal lives when we serve a limitless God? As the angel told Elizabeth, Luke 137, for nothing is impossible with God. Am I talking to anybody who stopped believing, enduring, and hoping? Anybody going through storms in your life? We have someone who said to the wind and waves, be quiet, and it stopped storming. Anybody here struggling with addictions and habits? And I say this over and over again, addictions and habits. Jesus conquered sin and death, and in his name, there is freedom for someone who calls on his name. No weapon formed against you, the Bible says, shall stand. Is anybody sitting here going, you know what? I don't know if I can make it, Peter. I'm struggling spiritually. I don't know if I can make it. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He finishes what he starts. Despite you, God is going to work in you. Is that good news? Despite you, God is going to work in you. He finishes what he starts. Anybody overwhelmed and feeling hopeless at the evil, injustice, brokenness of our world? I say this all the time. The last time I checked, the tomb is still empty and the kingdom of God is still advancing and he still sits on the throne. Go home and meditate on Romans 8. Where Paul says, I will not fear anything. I'm not going to fear life nor death, angels nor demons, powers nor principalities, nor the future or the present. I'm not going to fear hardship. I'm not going to fear suffering. I'm not going to fear peril, nakedness or sword. Why? Because if God is for me, then who what can be against me? Is that good news? Christmas means anything is possible. And then there's a word of challenge too. Let me be real quick about this. One of the things that when I hear I chuckle is when somebody goes, you know, I like Jesus, but I hate the church. I know some of y'all say that. Listen, I'm not gonna defend the church because there's so much wrong with the church. I was gonna say amen, but I'm not gonna say that. There's so much wrong with the church. There's so much brokenness. But listen, don't simply and casually say stuff like, I like Jesus, because in you read the New Testament, nobody who ever met Jesus liked him. Nobody who encountered Jesus thought, you know, I like you. Nobody. Anybody who encountered Jesus either hated him or feared him or fell down and said, command me. How are you responding to this Jesus? Remember what he said. He said, you want to follow me? Leave everything behind. You want to know what it's like to love me? Your love for me has to be so great that your love compared to anybody else on the face of the planet should look like hate. Don't let anything get in the way of pursuing me and following me. Throw it away. Pluck your eyes out. But don't be afraid because I've overcome the world and everything belongs to me. Is Jesus your all in all? Is Jesus your consuming passion and life? 
Are you saying about Jesus? If not you, then who? Is he your Lord? Is he your king? Jesus is God. There's a lot there, isn't it, church? You need to understand and feel the weight of that in order to feel the weight of the second, which is Jesus became God, man. Oh, man. The one who holds the universe. The one who appeared to Job in a tornado and a whirlwind. The one who appeared to Abraham as a blazing furnace. The one who appeared to Moses consuming fire. That God became became a baby. All of us are going to be on familiar emotional terrain. Have you ever been in a relationship with anybody? Have you ever had an experience where you got into a... And this happened. It's your fault. No, 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 it's... Anybody? Is that nervousness like, yes, I could relate. Am I the only one that does that with my wife? Can I get an amen if you know what that's like? Come on now, yes? Yes, of course, it's your fault, it's your fault. What's happening? And the relationship is unraveling, the relationship is disintegrating. Why? Because none of you is willing to give an inch. None of you is willing to budge. None of you is willing to be vulnerable. None of you is willing to what? Let down your defenses. Does anybody know what that's like? Some of you are like, that happened this morning, I know. <laughs> On the way to church, I know, I could tell. And as long as nobody's going to give an inch, that relationship is going to break, that relationship is going to unravel. And then this happens, right? And then this happens. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. And one of you go, yeah, you're right. It's my fault. And by the way, not in a sarcastic, yeah, it's my fault. I mean, like truly, like with repentance. Yeah, it's my fault. And what happens? All of a sudden, what? The relationship begins to what? Come back. The relationship begins to heal. And many times the relationship begins to deepen. When you are willing to say, even if 80% of it is you, I'm willing to admit the 20% that's me, okay? The 20% that's me. I'm willing to take that and admit that. And you become vulnerable and you let down your defenses. The relationship begins to heal. The relationship begins to come back. The relationship begins to, dare I say, reconcile. And you go, well, why would anybody do that? I'll tell you why I do it to my wife, okay? And she's here. I'll tell you why. Because even if she's like 80% wrong, <laughs> And I'm like 20%. No, most of the time it's like I'm 80% or 90% or 99%, okay? Even if it is, the reason why one of you does that is because you go, I want this relationship back. I want this relationship back. This relationship matters to me. You matter to me. This relationship was worth it. So I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to let down the defenses and I'm going to admit. Do you know why that works? 
because you and I are made in the image of one. Please listen, you and I are created in the image of the one who gave the ultimate expression of this when at Christmas, the beginningless, uncreated, all-wise, all-sovereign, all-powerful God of the universe became vulnerable. He let his defenses down. He became a baby. He became someone we could hurt. He became someone who we could hurt. The God who appeared to Job as a tornado whirlwind, the God who appeared to Abraham as a blaze burning, the God who appeared to Moses as consuming fire became vulnerable and let his defenses down. Why? To get you back. To win us back. Jesus. And the amazing, mind-blowing thing about the gospel, you guys, is it was 100% us. It's 100. We chose to come out under the rule and reign of God. We chose. God creates a perfect world of shalom. We decide, I don't want you to be king. I want to be my own king. We choose to come out from the rule and reign of God in our rebellion, in unleashing to the world the sin, evil, injustice. And what does God do? Heart the herald angels sing. God and sinners, what? Reconcile. To reconcile us, God didn't wait for you and I to drop our defenses. To reconcile sinful humanity, our God, our, our God chooses from Genesis to Revelation to pursue relentlessly lost humanity so that he can say, I want you back in my arms. You guys, I, I don't even know what to do with that, except my heart bursts out and says, amazing love, how can it be? Is anybody with me this morning? Have you lost the wonder of that? Have you lost the wonder of the created God of the universe dropping his defenses and becoming vulnerable so that he can reconcile sinful humanity who turned his back? Let's apply this. Let's apply this. What does it mean? Here's a challenge. If God went to these lengths to get near to you, what are you doing to get near to him? God went to these lengths to say, I want you. What are we doing? And it's a light of this where we go, lack of discipline, good Lord. I don't have time, good Lord. I'm too busy, good Lord. Church, I'm going to tell you right now, claw, scratch away to be near him. 
he went to these lengths for you. And if there's anybody who here says, I don't know, will God reject me? I don't know. If he went to these lengths to be near to you, he says, draw near to me and what I will draw near to you. Pursue him. And one other challenge, real quick, I was thinking about this. Is there anybody here who has a relationship that's fraying? Who has a relationship that's falling apart? Who has a relationship that's not where it needs to be? You know, when I do marital counseling, do you know what I say to the couples? I go, who's going to follow the way of Jesus in his incarnation? Who's going to follow the way of Jesus of letting your defenses down and being vulnerable? In other words, I'm going, who's going to say, Instead of me being understood first, I'm going to try and understand you. Instead of saying, until my needs are met, I'm going to say, I want to meet your needs first. Instead of saying, I need you to learn and change your love language. So I, we say, I will enter your world and learn your love language to serve you. Who is going to today enter into the way of incarnation? Otherwise, that relationship may never heal. Who's going to drop their defenses and say, yeah. Comfort? Comfort? There's so many of God becoming God, man. I'm just going to look at two. And the rest of the Advent season, we'll look at the implications, the comfort and the encouragement of God becoming God, man. Just look at two. First, we have in him our wonderful counselor. Oh, I, I tell you what, if you understand, if you understand the power of incarnation, you will understand that when you're suffering, when you're going through hardship, you and I have the most unbelievable resource there is available. Do you know who makes the best counselors in the world? People who've been through the exact same thing that you've been through and have come out on the other side. I'm one of those people that likes to suffer alone. You too? I, do you know why? See, see, I'm going to speak for myself because I'm arrogant. Shows up in two ways. One, I, I actually believe this lie. I go, nobody understands me. Was that just a sigh of relief or was it a sigh of, <sighs> nobody understands me. I walk around like that every day. Nobody understands me. Nobody understands me. Nobody understands me. Because you know what I've had the experience of? I've had the experience of pouring my heart out to somebody to have that person look at me with a blank face like, is there anything worse than that? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Is there anything worse than pouring your heart out to somebody who looks at you? I, and then you meet someone who's gone through what you've gone through. And then you meet someone who's gone through the same thing you've gone through. And all of a sudden, there's a part of you that says, you understand, don't you? That's why the two most powerful words in the English language are, me too. Do you know what you have in Jesus? Oh, church. Author of Hebrews says, this is so amazing. 
Chapter 4, verse 15, we don't have a high priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing. He has experienced it all, all but the sin. We have in Jesus this Christmas someone who's been through everything we've been through who says, I understand, I know. Is that good news? Have you been betrayed this year? Jesus was betrayed by his closest friends and his family. He knows. Anybody experienced loneliness this year and isolation? Jesus says he knows. Anybody this year experienced unanswered prayer? God, I'm crying out to you. Do you hear me? We remember that on the mountain of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed what? My God. Jesus prayed what? Father, take this cup from me. Father, is there any way that I could avoid the cross? If there's any way. And that prayer went unanswered. Anybody ever feel this year like, God, are you near? Am I abandoned? Am I forsaken? Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me? He understands, and he knows. But then the author of Hebrews says something else more amazing. Right after that, he says, so let's walk right up to him. Walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. Take the mercy and accept the help. The other reason why I don't like to go to people when I'm suffering or going through hardship, the reason why I like to suffer alone is because I don't want to be judged. I don't want to be rejected. I don't want to be condemned. I don't want to lecture. I don't want to be told what to do. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, when you come to me, there is mercy available. There is grace available. <sighs> There's mercy available. There's grace available. There's help available. I don't know who I'm talking to today. But if you're someone who says, God, this has been a really hard year. Do you understand? Do you care? Do you know? And I say this every year. This side of heaven, we will not understand why God allows suffering and hardship to enter into this world. But at Christmas, we are reminded that we know with certainty what the answer isn't. And the answer is not that he doesn't care, that he doesn't love us, that he's abandoned us. Because in Jesus, we have God who came in and plunged himself into a world of suffering and hardship so that one day he could end all suffering and hardship without ending us. Is that good news? Wonderful counselor. One more, and that is cosmic reconciler. Cosmic reconciler. And we'll unpack this more in the next two weeks. The other thing about the incarnation that I love, church, when I think about God becoming God, man, is that what? In the incarnation, we have... We have all the reasons to be passionate about justice, passionate about fixing and working with God to, to fix what is broken in this world. Think about this. The four major parts of biblical revelation in creation, we have a God who is in the dirt and getting his hands dirty. 
In the incarnation, then we have God who takes on a human body. In the resurrection, we have a God who is resurrected bodily and physically, and man in restoration. When all things are restored, the Bible says the promise is a new heavens and a new earth. Can I just say something? I was talking to a friend of mine this week who said, Peter, what's heaven going to be like? And I told him, I said, here's what heaven's going to be like. We're not going to be these ethereal spirits just wandering around in the heaven, in the kingdom of God. We're going to eat. We're going to drink. We're going to hug and be hugged. We're going to dance. We're going to march, not float, but march in the kingdom of God. And we we are going to love and be known. Is that good news? Come on, somebody. In the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God says, not just the spirit, but the body matters, physical matters, creation matters, matter matters. That's why you and I, during Christmas, are reminded that Christians of all people ought to be most passionate about saving not just souls, but making sure that there's affordable housing. Making sure that disease, pain, and sickness are dealt with. We could in the same breath talk about, we want people's spirits to be reconciled. But we want all of creation to be reconciled as well. Because at the end, that is exactly what God is doing. I always get emotional when I think about that scene in Lord of the Rings where Sam says to Gandalf, Gandalf, is everything sad going to come untrue? The promise of the incarnation is that God is going to redeem everything. And you and I get to play a part in that now. Is that good news? Yeah. You guys, this Saturday, where are you going to be? I'll tell you where I'm going to be. I'm going to be at the Los Posadas event. It's my physical way of saying I want to participate in the work that God is doing, not to save souls, but making sure that there's affordable housing. Are you going to be here when we're serving our homeless brothers and sisters? A small way to be able to say God cares about the broken, the poor, and the marginalized. What are you and I doing to participate in the work that God is doing? Oh, this is such good news. Peter, how do we know? Cece, come on up, brother. How do we know? How do we know these amazing truths are available to us? How do we know that we could celebrate the incarnation? We could celebrate heaven. How do we know, Peter, that we have in Jesus a wonderful counselor? How do we know, Jesus? How do we know that God is going to come and reconcile and restore everything? How do we know, Peter, that we could walk out here with the assurance that this is not some just a hope thing in the distant future? But how do we know that this is reality, this is truth? Because the last thing John says is, and the word became flesh, and he, what? Dwell. John could have used any word for dwell in the Greek. There are three, four different words to say reside, dwell, live. But do you know what word he used? He used the Greek word for tabernacle. Tabernacle. And readers of the Old Testament would have been like, what? He became flesh and tabernacled among us? See, John is hearkening you and me back to Exodus 33. Exodus 33, when God is talking to Moses, Moses says, what? God, I want to see your glory. Show me your glory. I want to see your face. I want to see your face. God, I want Emmanuel. God, I want to see your glory. I want to sense your presence. I want to know you. And what does God say? God says, you can't. It'll kill you. The glory of God 
my glory will kill you. Moses, I'm talking about my glory resides on Mount Sinai. You can't even touch it, otherwise you'll die. My glory is all-consuming fire. I am holy. You're just a mist that appears for five seconds is gone. My glory will overwhelm you and crush you, Moses. No, you can't. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to set up a tabernacle. And my glory will reside behind the veil in the Holy of Holies. And once a year, Yom Kippur, the holiest person nation, the high priest and only the high priest, could enter behind the veil and offer sacrifices and atonement so that my people and be my people. And John, church, I'll unpack this more next week. John says, the, the glory of God tabernacled among us and he is saying nothing short of the glory the glory of God the unbearable beauty of God the unassailable majesty of God the consuming holiness of God that would have destroyed Moses and any other creation or creature that touched it that glory is coming where? into your life and into my life not to destroy us but to heal us to restore us so that we could sense his presence and we could feel his love is that good news to anybody? the tornado of the world with the glory of God the majesty of God that overwhelms creation John says can come into your life and into my life to restore to reconcile to heal is anybody here this morning saying I want to feel God's presence I do I want to know God's love I do John says it's available to you and to me today is that good news and you go, well, how is that possible? Why wasn't Moses able to go in and experience God's glory? One last relationship illustration. If you are the, if you are the recipient of injustice and evil, not just the slight, but injustice and evil, then it can't just be shrugged off. It can't just go away because someone says, I'm sorry. Think about slavery and racism, the horrors of Holocaust, the evils of apartheid. Think of the injustices our world has endured. I don't care if you're a Christian or not. Something in us says, you can't just say, I'm sorry and be done with it. Something has to be done. Some payment has to be made. The gap has to close. And do you know what the Bible says? And I hope this sits with you. The Bible says that the gap between us and each other when we harm each other is nothing compared to the infinite gap that exists between holy God and sinful man. Why did Jesus become vulnerable? So that he could become killable. Why did he become killable? Because on the cross, he pays with his life the payment and sacrifice so that gap between holy God and sinful humanity could be reconciled. Mark 14, the moment that Jesus is crucified, the Bible says, and the veil in the temple was torn into from top to bottom, just to make sure you know who initiates it. And now the glory of God, 
than Moses only dreamt about could come into you and into me. Are you sitting here this morning, anybody saying, Peter, I want to feel his presence, anybody? Peter, I need some healing and restoration in my life. Peter, I need to know that I'm loved and I'm cherished. And the Bible says, he became flesh and tabernacled so that you and I could come and enter his presence. Pray with me. about it throughout this morning. The glory of God. The glory of God. The glory of God. The beauty of God. The majesty of God. The power of God. The wonder of God. That all the saints, Job, Abraham, Moses only dreamt about, only looked and wished for from a distance. This Christmas we're reminded that glory that he 